Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Terry Meyer. I am the uh, Director of Family Life Ministries here at GCF. And I actually had to read that because it's such a new job. Uh, I've just been here for the last couple of months. So uh, as the Director of Family Life Ministries, I'd like to remind you for all of those who have middle schoolers and high schoolers, we're going to have a, uh, a, a parent meeting in the uh, fellowship hall right after this. Uh, we want to talk to you about uh, the changes this year. I'd like you to meet the leaders. And then also we'll learn about um, uh, just what we're going to do a little bit different this year. So the, the team, middle school and high school team, is very excited to get started serving your families. Uh, so the title for today's sermon is God Rescues the Helpless. Uh, and so I think before we get started, we, we need to pray. <laughs> so let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning, and, and pray, Lord, uh, that you would fill us with your spirit. Lord, I pray that uh, the gospel would be understood. Lord, your goodness to us. I pray we would walk away from this time knowing that you are a good God, that you do save the helpless, those who call on you. So be with us this morning, Father. Fill us with your spirit again. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now, one of the things that we're doing as a family is we're building a mother-in-law home uh, for my uh, mother-in-law who's, who's here today. And one of the things I needed to do is I needed to bring power to the house itself. So I, I dug a trench from the transformer all the way over to the house. It was about 100 feet long altogether. And as I was looking over the trench... I realized that there was one little section in the middle of the trench that was not quite deep enough. So I thought, well, I'll just take the tractor and I'll straddle the trench on either side and I'll go out there. And even as I was making the plan, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if this is a good idea. I wonder if the walls of the trench are going to hold up on the weight of the tractor. So I go out there, get there just fine, and I start to dig. And then, of course, the inevitable happened. The whole tractor slipped down into the, uh, the trench itself. So, you know, there, there's a special type of desperation uh, that you feel when you've done something so foolish like this. Can anybody relate that little word that you don't listen to? All right, good, I'm not alone. About 100 things shot through my mind. I've broken the tractor. Uh, I have no money to fix this tractor. What am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this mess that I'm in? Because it was, it was a rather deep trench. We'll just say that. Um, how am I going to get the rest of the job done without the tractor? And, you know, the worst thing is, it wasn't my tractor. <laughs> it was actually Kendall's tractor. <laughs> So, Kendall, your tractor's fine. So, now, um, but I was thinking, well, what if Kendall shows up to get his tractor and it's half underneath the ground? So, I was stuck. I felt stuck. And, you know, in desperation, I began to call out to the Lord for help. Not the normal calling out that, you know, Lord, please help Aunt Susie and her bunions. It was more like, Lord, I am stuck. Unless you intervene, I am not going to get out of this. Well, I, in, I did actually, after three hours of digging, get out. Um, and I tell you, the joy I felt uh, 
rolling that tractor out of the ditch was, was wonderful. Praising the Lord. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. Thank you for hydraulics. Uh, there was a lot of hydraulics that happened with that. So Now, the joy that I felt in driving that tractor out of the trench was, was David's joy multiplied by 100. In his roughly 70 years, David found himself in many, many situations that were way far beyond that little trouble that I had. And Psalm 18 is a, is a beautiful psalm and that David, at the end of his life, he's looking back over his life and he's rejoicing over all the times God rescued him when he was absolutely helpless. And this is why the psalm begins as it does. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Now, a couple of things over verses 1 and 2. This word for love here is very, very uncommon in the Old Testament. It is a very strong word of how David felt about God, expressing deep, deep emotion, tenderness towards God. You know, if somebody were to use a phrase today like it, like this phrase, I love you, people around would be a little bit surprised. It's not like, oh, I love you. It's more like, I love you. You are absolutely everything to me. My world revolves around you. That's the kind of love that he is talking about here. And you can tell that as David's describing God as his rock, his refuge, his shield and stronghold, he's reliving all of the escapes and victories that God had rescued him from. Sort of like me after getting unstuck and driving out and looking back over that event, I was saying, Lord, you are great. You are my hydraulics. It's a similar thing. All right, so today, uh, this morning, we're going to explore God's rescuing of David when he was helpless in, in the hope that we might be encouraged to call on his name, because we're helpless a lot. I don't know if you feel that way, but we are. So today we're going to explore the need for rescue, the nature of rescue, the people God rescues, who does he rescue, and the means of rescue. So first off, the need for rescue. We need rescue because we live in a fallen world where death and destruction reign. Uh, look at me with uh, verses 4 through 6. So looking back over all the times he's been in helpless circumstances, David wrote, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. Now, the potential for David's death and destruction was real. In 70 years of life, David faced enemies both internally and also externally. You know, Saul had hired David to play the liar, and on two occasions picked up a spear to throw it at David and pin him against the wall. Talk about a slightly hostile work environment. <laughs> For years, Saul chased David all over Judea, where he's cornered. David was outnumbered. He was lonely. He was uncertain. 
He was frightened. He surrounded himself with men that were like probably not the top uh, echelon of society. They gathered around him. So even his, even his company that he kept was probably a struggle. But they did become mighty men. So that's a good thing. But it was really David's own personal sin uh, that ultimately resulted in the most death and destruction for David. It, and as you remember, uh, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then to cover it up, murdered her husband Uriah. Now, the world is no less hostile to you. And as Brian had mentioned last week, that we have an adversary that is far stronger than Saul. Satan is described in 1 Peter as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, I, I don't think that Satan is probably going to attack you and I personally. I don't think maybe that we're that important. Uh, but Satan... Uh, his influence is everywhere in our culture. It's a culture we've, we've walked away from truth, and we've, uh, we've really adopted a, a, a life of the feels. How does it feel? Uh, Satan works to kill, steal, and destroy today, and um, all that is good and wonderful and beautiful, and, and actually targets those who are the most innocent in our culture, which are children themselves. We live in a fallen world where bad things just happen. As I look around the room, we've had death of family members, cancer, fires, car accidents, falls, job losses, canceled flights, taxes. But really what we need to be rescued from more than any of those things is what causes the most death and destruction for each of us, which is our own sin. Worse than cancer, house fire, or car accidents, uh, loss of a job or a canceled flight, even worse than taxes, uh, is standing before a perfect God stained with sin. You know, cars and homes and jobs can be replaced, uh, but sin results in judgment before God, and that is not a, uh, that is an eternal uh, situation judgment before God. So, what is sin? Probably important to define it. Uh, Michael Kruger, who uh, wrote Surviving Religion 101, which is actually a book that we have back in the uh, bookstore, defines sin as this. Uh, typically, we think of sin as just breaking a rule, and there's a sense in which that's true. But we forget that sin is also breaking a relationship. Sin is when we take our deepest affections off of the one who deserves them, God, and place them onto other things that do not. I like the way he words that. It's taking our deepest affection off of the one who really is beautiful, true, and good and placing him into something that, that God created. And we're all guilty of that. So think about the times in your life that have caused you the most regret, the most death and destruction. For most of us, our own sin, placing our affections on something other than God is the greatest cause of our suffering. So this leads to the second aspect of our need for rescue. Uh, the first is we live in a place where death and destruction reign. And the next aspect of our need is we need to be rescued because we're not capable of rescuing ourselves. Now, going back to verses 4 through 6, 
The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Look at the words that David uses here. He was entangled, wrapped with ropes, snared. Even the Hebrew word for distress, in my distress, signifies a narrow place, hemmed in. He can't get out. He's in, we would say today, he's in dire straits. Uh, it really is the same for you and I facing the challenges of living in a world that has fallen. So we can't control the weather. You can't control your genetics. All the men here have an X and a Y. Women have an X and an X. As much as we would like to control that, we can't. You have no control over the family you've been born into. You have a little bit of control over culture in government. Uh, but in regard to our own sin, we are likewise not capable of freeing ourselves from it. Uh, for example, um, well, most people in, we encounter try to deal with sin, uh, the problem of sin themselves. And now, I, I teach chemistry for a local school, and uh, I will give a test and as I, if it's especially a difficult test, the students will take it, they'll look at it, and they say, well, what's the first question they ask? Am I going to grade it on the curve? And, uh, and usually I do, but I know I always have somebody who's going to get 100%. I always got the ace in the hole. Well, we, we look at our own sin that way. Uh, maybe God will grade me on the curve. You know, I'm not quite as bad as, as that person over there, so maybe I'm going to be okay. Well, but God doesn't grade on the curve. But I, well, maybe he grades on the curve, but the, the curve was set by his own son, who was perfect. And so um, we don't have much hope in God grading on the curve. Other strategies, people attempt to rescue themselves from sin. They redefine it. Our world does an excellent job of redefining sin. We cover it up, we ignore it, we hide it. But Paul understood the gravity of sin and our inability to deal with it. In Romans chapter 7, uh, starting verse 21, he writes this. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law, uh, to the law of sin and death that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, I understand that there's a question as to whether Paul is talking about uh, describing his life before he was saved or whether this struggle with sin is a normal part of the Christian life. But regardless... The point is, you and I are in a helpless state in regard to our own sin. We, we desperately need to be rescued from it. The very fact that Paul is asking the question, who will deliver me from this body of death, means that he's not able to remedy it himself. So we looked at the need for our rescue. What about the nature of our rescue? How does God rescue us? First of all, Praise the Lord that he hears us. Verse 6, from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry reached him, uh, reached his ears. What an encouragement that throughout the scriptures, God hears those in dire straits who call on him. 
Uh, he heard the nation of Israel when they called out to him in slavery, and he acted. I love Psalm 34. It says he's near to the brokenhearted and saves the Christian spirit. God heard the prayers of uh, Leah, Rachel, and Hannah when they couldn't bear children. When Peter was sort of walking on water and he started to sink, God heard his prayers, Lord, save me. God heard the blind men when they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, do you notice something similar in all of those cries? Well, they were really cries of helplessness. They were cries that were especially focused on God alone for rescues. Cries like, God, I'm not going anywhere else for rescue. If you don't rescue me, then I guess I won't be rescued. There's sort of cries like that. I'm, I'm not going to a lot of different places for rescue, Lord. I'm going to you alone. You know, it's like the widow who kept coming to the wicked judge, asking for justice, and she kept knocking and knocking. I need help. I need help. And ultimately, what did he do? Well, even though he didn't fear God, because she kept on bothering him, he gave her justice. Uh, prayers like, I'm not going away until you answer me. So let me ask you a question. How do you cry out to God? Do you cry out to God? Are your prayers tinged with a bit of desperation? And here's what I mean by that. I really think they should be when we pray a bit of desperation. So if you're going to ask God to work in a particular situation, you're asking him to do something supernatural. You're asking him to intervene, and that by its very nature, you really don't have control of the outcome. You're completely dependent on him to work. So whenever you pray, you're asking God to do something supernatural. Now, this leads to our next point, of the nature of God's rescue. Not only does God hear, but he also acts. Uh, God heard David and acted. He moved both heaven and earth to rescue him. Uh, look, at we, look with me to verses 7 to 15. Uh, then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed down the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water out of the brightness before him. Hailstones and clouds of fire broke through these clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens. And the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Now, in verses 7 through 15, David is, is very likely using images of how God rescued Israel from Egypt, specifically when they were in a tight corner surrounded on one side by the Red Sea, the other side by the Egyptian army. And, and that does make sense because David, as Saul was chasing him, often found himself cornered uh, in, in a cave somewhere, um, hemmed in 
tight, David often found his way himself in that kind of situation. And from these verses, it's evident that there's, not, there's no part of creation that God didn't rattle in rescuing his people. He rattled, the earth reeled and rocked. He bent the heavens and he controlled the weather. He emptied the seas. Now, but then David switches gears a bit. So he's talking about this incredible, wonderful salvation that he gave to the nation of Israel. And then in verses 16 through 19, he's saying what God did there, he also did for me personally. Look down there at verse 16. He sent from on high, and he changes to the first person here. And he took me. He drew me out of the many waters. Now, the ESV here uh, says he sent from on high, but most Bible commentators would say a better word is he reached from on high. So it's a very different picture that God reaching down in rescuing David, pulling him out of the situation that he was in. He rescued me from the strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. What a picture. God reaching down and lifting David out of a very difficult, helpless situation uh, again and again. You know, when my, uh, when my kids were young, real young, uh, a little while ago, um, I remember one time uh, my, my son Christian had gotten sick, and, uh, and so we kind of heard him rustling in the next room, and, um, and I, I opened the door and, and immediately knew something very, very bad had happened in this room. <laughs> so he was very sick, and it ended up throwing up all over himself. So I walked in, and there's my son in his crib, and what, what was he doing? Screaming out. He wasn't articulating something great theologically. He was just saying, Dad, because he was covered. And it was one of those, one of those points where I, I did not say, Stace, we got a problem here. I, I didn't do that. What did I do is I, I came over, and I, and I picked him up <laughs> as best I could. Why did I do that? Why did I pick him up? Because he's my son. Because I love him. Because I delighted in him. Besides, he's helpless. He could not get out of the situation that he was in. You know, I, my encouragement today is God is like that. You know, if he, he's a rescuer of the helpless. Now, if I'm sinful and I can go and rescue my son out of kind of a helpless, gross, bad situation, don't you think God would be uh, even more willing to rescue us? Now, I need to say that personally I've struggled with this over life. Like, okay, I know what the Bible says. I know that he has rescued people, and I believe that in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, but what about me and my circumstances? You know, I believe the Scriptures, but would God care to rescue me as he did David? And can God delight in me as he delighted in David? And the answer to that is a resounding yes. Um, and leads us to our next point. So we've looked at the, the uh, need for salvation or for rescue 
the nature of God's rescue. And now we're going to look at the people he rescues. Who does God rescue? You know, and personally, I want to be at a place where I know that when I call out to God, that I have confidence that he is going to rescue me. But we know if you look down at verse 41, David's enemies also cried out to God, but he did not answer them. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer. I don't want to be in a situation like that. So not everyone who cries out to the Lord is rescued by God. And Jesus himself said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So then who then will God rescue? And we have some hints here from Psalm 18. Uh, Look with me to verses 20 to 24. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. For his rules were before me in his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him. So I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Now I know what some of you might be thinking. Um, Well, I guess I'm out then. I, I know that I'm not blameless before God. I disobey God in my actions. I disobey God in my inaction. Uh, And not even to mention my thought life. So there's absolutely no way for me to be blameless before God. Now, fortunately, David understood this as well. Um, David was the one who wrote Psalm 14 that we looked at a few weeks ago. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there were any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So that's an interesting dilemma. On one side, David's calling himself blameless. And on the other side, he has an understanding that there is no one who's righteous before God. So I believe the answer is that by God's grace, David was humble before God. So not only does he save the blameless, but he saves the humble. Uh, Psalm 18, verse 27, For you save a humble people, but haughty eyes you bring down. Listen, David knew that he didn't have the resources to be blameless before God. He understood that. So he looked to God alone to help him. C.J. Mahaney describes humility in this way in his book on humility. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness in our sinlessness, our sinfulness. And what about humility that makes it critical? Well, if we're humble, then we're not going to rely on our own limited resources to be blameless but we're going to rely on God alone for our blamelessness instead of our own. And the fact is, God is, that gives God glory when we rely on Him because He becomes our blamelessness. And God is seriously interested in His own glory. Uh, He says in Isaiah 48, 11, Behold, I have refined you, not as silver, I have tried you 
in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. Now David, or God had refined David through decades of affliction. This was really the source of his humility. He understood his own sin, and he understood God's holiness, and he relied on God for his blamelessness. And this brings us to our final point. Uh, We looked at the need for rescue, the nature of rescue, the people God rescues, and finally, how does God do it? How does he rescue us? What are the means of his rescue? Well, let's take a look at the life of David first. How did God rescue David? And we'd already made mention to this. Uh, But God rescues us when we're helpless exactly the same way he has always rescued his people throughout history. We're rescued by God's grace. We're rescued through faith, through trusting in him. God himself was the sole source of David's blameless life. It was purely a gift from God. So let's explore this in verses 30 to 32. In these verses, David took his eyes off of himself and his circumstances and considered who God is. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge uh, in him. For who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? And here's a key verse. The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. David's blameless life was completely empowered by God. David knew the perfection and the holiness of God in verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. And also in verse 30, he takes refuge in God as the only one who's able to equip him with strength and make his way blameless. But what about you and I? What's the means of our rescue? Now, we know that David was not 100% blameless. We know that he sinned, and he knew that he sinned. But there's someone who came after David, his great, 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 great. I think there's 28 greats in there. I'm not going to go through them all. But um, his great-grandson, so to speak, Jesus perfectly relied on God's power through the Holy Spirit to live a sinless life, blameless and sinless. Acts 10.38 says, For God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. What God did in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Christ provided us with the only means to be truly blameless before God. What David did is he took refuge in the perfection of God Verse 30, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. So in the middle of helpless situations, you and I can also take refuge behind a perfect God, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ. As it is with David, so it is with you and me. We put our faith in God alone for rescue. Now, 
what does that look like for you and I? What do we do, so to speak? Now, what I'm going to say next is true, whether you've been a Christian for 20 years or maybe this is the first time that you've heard of who Jesus is. As we have looked at before, the thing we need to be rescued from the most is our own sin before a pure and holy God. So what does this mean? Well, we accept we're sinful, both in word and deed. And we reorient our deepest affections back to the one or maybe towards the one for the first time who really deserves them, God himself. For me, I know this is something that I do every single day when I wake up. Does anybody relate to that? I have to reorient my affections towards God on a daily basis, whether you're just first meeting him or you've walked with him for years. We believe that in trusting in Christ's death, that God supernaturally takes our sin and applies it to his own son. Now, if God is powerful enough to credit our sin to Christ, don't you think that he's powerful enough to credit his blameless life to you and I? And that's what God did on the cross. He took our sin upon himself, and he credited his perfect life to you and I. 2 Corinthians uh, 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the source of our blamelessness. Not that you're perfectly blameless, but your blamelessness was won for you by the merits of Christ. Jesus lived the perfectly blameless life that you couldn't live on your own. If you've trusted Christ for salvation, God sees you through the lens of his own son. Now, through the grace of God, your ultimate problem has been dealt with. He's made a way for you to deal with your greatest problem, which is sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But, but what about the helpless issues I find myself in on a, on a day-to-day basis? You know, I, I know something for each one who's listening to me right now comes to mind. When I say you're in a helpless situation, something comes to mind. Does something come to mind with you? Anybody? Okay. Good. I'm not alone. Because I have a few areas where I feel helpless. Maybe, you're tra- maybe you have a relationship that you're struggling with and you can't see a way forward. Uh, maybe you feel trapped at work and you feel like you're always on the hot seat. Uh, perhaps you have a child who's wandered away from Christ or, or you have a child that is really challenging to parent. I don't have any experience in that. <laughs> Regardless of what it is, whether it's large or small, God has sovereignly put you in that helpless situation so that you might turn to him and experience his rescue. You know, God is working to coax you, to to woo you into trusting him, to call out to him so you might experience the joy 
of watching, uh, watching him rescue you in helpless times. You know, as Christians, we really live for the end. You know, we know that it, at some point in time, we are going to stand before God in all of his holiness, in all of his purity. And we live our lives right now looking forward to that time because this life is passing. Uh, this life is not all there is. The next life, being in heaven with God forever and the joy there, it, it, it is so much more wonderful than the things that we have here. Now, we're going to stand face to face. And my hope is, is that Psalm 18, as we looked at it, that the, uh, as we draw close to the end of our lives, we may be able to look back as, as David did and see God's incredible rescue, not only just for the things that we deal with, but really our greatest issue, which is our own sin. So my hope, we're going to end with this. My hope is uh, for all of us that as we look back, we might be able to say what David did. Uh, verses 1 and 2, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Now, listen, God has acted, already acted on your behalf and shaken heaven and earth in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to address your greatest need. You can trust him today. You can turn to him today. You can call out to him today. Let's close in prayer.